There are going to be a couple of ideas that we repeatedly touch on in this season, because not only are they going to pop up over and over again, they're crucial to understanding what has changed and what those changes have done to the way we think about God. First, like we looked at in the previous episode, mediums are not value neutral. They ask us to do certain things, and they ask us to not do certain things. They actively encourage some forms of engagement or consumption and actively discourage others. And in doing so, our communities become reshaped around the terms of engagement set forth by these mediums. In a culture where books and words were the dominant medium of communication, not only are you expected to know how to read and interact with this medium, but you expect everyone else to be able to do the same thing. And the same is true with television. But as we started contrasting in the last episode, word-based mediums have radically different terms of engagements than the ones set forth by television when it became widely adopted. And these terms of engagements have implications for how we engage with Christianity. Second, and this is something we're not going to emphasize as often, but it's still very crucial to understand, Christianity has always revolved around the medium of the spoken and the written word. We fleshed this concept out some in episode three, and before we keep going forward, we need to revisit it again because I deliberately left something out in that episode. I failed to mention the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 also known as the second commandment, states that, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, part of the reason I bring it up now is because television is a visual medium, and Christianity in being a religion revolving around the medium of the spoken and written word, is a religion that explicitly did not revolve around visual mediums. And we know this because of the second commandment. Let's look at where this commandment is even located. The first commandment is straightforward enough. You shall have no other gods before me. Right off the bat, God is making it clear that his people will be different from the surrounding religions in that he alone is to be worshipped and not to be included in the pantheon of gods of ancient Near Eastern culture. You would think that what would come next in the Ten Commandments would be a commandment about giving God respect and honor, but that's not what happens. Before we get to the third commandment, the commandment prohibiting taking God's name in vain, we are told that we are prohibited from making images of God. God saw this commandment as being so important that he gives it immediately after the first commandment telling the Israelites that no other gods are to be worshipped and before the commandment concerned with insulting him by misusing his name and before honoring the Sabbath, even before honor thy father and mother and thou shalt not murder. What is God saying here in the placement of this commandment. 
I think it's safe to say that he is saying that not only will his people be different in how they will only worship one God, his people will also be different in that their God will not be represented via an image like every other surrounding pagan God was. Throughout the Bible, we see that the presence of images among the people of God is always a bad sign, regardless of whether or not they were actually worshiping them. I don't think it's a coincidence that immediately after the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments, Moses goes down from the mountain to find the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And it makes sense. They had just come from a land where the Egyptian deities were visually depicted everywhere and worshipped by their Egyptian neighbors, and so they were accustomed to having visual representations of deities as a focal point of worship. But as God made clear to his people, that's not how they were going to operate. Likewise, in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace because they refused to worship an image recognizing Nebuchadnezzar as a deity. Later in the New Testament, one of the most significant moments in the book of Acts is when the apostle Paul comes into conflict with a man named Demetrius, who instigates a riot in the city of Ephesus because his business of making images of Artemis was being threatened and undermined by the gospel. Now, there are a range of opinions about whether or not the second commandment applies to the post-incarnate Jesus or not, but regardless of whether or not you believe that images of the post-incarnate Christ are exempted or not, and there's plenty of discussion and debate to be had there, we can agree that this commandment absolutely still applies to the Father and the Spirit, and like the rest of the Ten Commandments, this commandment is still binding and in effect among believers today. But why, though? Why did God give this commandment at all? I think part of the reason why God gave this commandment is because God knows our nature, and he knows how our nature became corrupted by the fall. As the other Ten Commandments emphasize, God knows that in our sinful state, that we are prone to idolatry, to violence, to lust, to greed, to ungratefulness, and several others. In God forbidding visual representations of himself, he does so knowing that visual mediums value certain things, and that the things that visual mediums value are not the things that God values, but maybe they're things that we value in our sinful state. Specifically, as Neil Postman outlines early on in his book, the written and spoken word values as a medium abstract thinking, contemplation, and meditation, which are things that we tend to not to do in our fallen sinful state. Television, like we talked about in the previous episode, doesn't ask us to engage in this higher level of thinking and contemplation. You can if you want to, but you can get by watching television just fine with relatively minimal focus and attention. I don't think it's inherently controversial to say that watching a television show is easier than reading a book in general. I also don't think it's inherently controversial to say that reading a book requires abstract thinking and contemplation if you want to get the most out of reading a book, and that if the God of Christianity was to be understood through the medium of the word, then this God must value abstract thinking and contemplation and meditation 
as well, and he desires that this be reflected in how we worship him. It's hard to worship the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, if the locus of your worship is centered around a medium that does not ask of you all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Something we all know we must give if we're going to walk by faith and not by sight. And again, the problem here isn't that television doesn't ask us to engage in higher critical thought. There's nothing wrong with watching a sitcom, crime drama, sports game, or other television entertainment and veg out in doing so. This is just not okay in Christian worship. Now, all of that being said, it's time to introduce a third idea that we are going to repeatedly come back to in later episodes, but we need to do some setup first. If the printing press is what made the Protestant Reformation possible, then I think it's safe to say that television is what made the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel possible. Both were theological revolutions, but these theological revolutions were only made possible because of the media revolutions that undergirded the way that these evolutions spread their message. I don't think I need to spend much time detailing the prosperity gospel and who its main proponents are. Whether you agree with that designation or not, you know who I'm referring to and what they teach. But regardless of your opinion of the prosperity gospel, I think that we can agree that the theological content notwithstanding, the television broadcasts of these guys make for pretty good television. The production quality is usually pretty slick and solid. The talking heads, whether it's the pastors or their guests, have good communication and speaking skills. It may not be the most exciting stuff to watch, but it is watchable. Even if it's a sermon recording and you can see the massive crowd in in attendance, the pastor usually knows where the cameras are located and is able to look directly into them and, while preaching to the crowd, preach to the individual at home as well. I know Joel Osteen is usually treated as the poster boy for the prosperity gospel and regularly whipped for it as a result, but to give him some credit here, Being able to communicate to a crowd while simultaneously knowing when and where to turn his head so that he's simultaneously looking into a camera as he is talking is a pretty difficult thing to do. The result is that the people in attendance feel as though he's speaking to him and so does the individual at home, which, as we've talked about, the people watching a sermon at home are watching this message in a radically different context than those watching it live and in person. But if you're a technological optimist, if you tend to respond to new technology and media with optimism, this is a huge opportunity. Television allows for you to reach people who may not ever step foot in the church and reach them in their homes without even having to send anyone out and without even having to get across the front door. The late Reverend Billy Graham, who was one of the pioneers of translating Christianity to television, wasn't technically wrong when he said that, Television is the most powerful tool of communication ever devised by man. 
Each of my primetime specials is now carried by nearly 300 stations across the U.S. and Canada, so that in a single telecast, I preach to millions more than Christ did in his lifetime. But, as Neil Postman argues, and as we will constantly restate throughout this season, if the delivery is not the same, then the message, quite likely, is not the same. And if the context in which the message is experienced is altogether different from what it was in Jesus' time, we may assume that its social and psychological meaning is different as well. Simply put, there is a difference between watching a sermon preached in a church and watching a sermon preached through television. Now, that might seem obvious, but I want to explore this a little bit. How do you go to church? To hear someone preach, you hopefully take a shower and get on some decent clothes, get in the car with enough travel time to arrive at the start of the service. You walk in, you find a seat, and you participate in a shared experience. And this shared experience takes place in a space or a context of some kind. You may not know anyone else in the room, but you are sitting in the same seats as they are. You're expected to sing when it's time to sing. You're expected to be quiet and listen when someone is speaking. You feel the laughter in the room at a joke or a gaffe or the dead silence after a stunning rebuke or controversial declaration. But regardless of whether or not you're enjoying the sermon or not, you can't leave without physically getting up and walking out. A social fear that many introverts like myself know all too well. You make eye contact with people. Maybe you'll shake some hands and say hello. And once everything is said and done, you'll go back home, change into your lazy clothes, and go about your day. Now, if you were to tune in to hear that same sermon preached through television, very little of what I just said would apply to you. You don't need to bathe. You technically don't even need clothes if you don't want to wear them. There's no need to weave through the crowd. To find a seat, nor will you be asked to leave if you start shouting to someone in a different room of the house. There's no eye contact, there's no handshakes, there's no awkward side hugs. Whatever there is of a shared experience, it comes at the expense of an experience tied to a context because the space you're in is not the same. You might be watching the same thing as the people. Physically in attendance, but your context is not their context. The context is no longer the church, but the living room. It's no longer the gathered body of Christ, but an individual Christian in a space an individual creates to reflect who you are and what you love. And as prosperity gospel pastors would soon discover, television is a powerful medium to speak to people in such a way that reinforces their love of comfort, security, wealth, entertainment, and success, as communicated through televisions that our living rooms are all designed around. I rewrote this episode at this point several different times because detailing the social and psychological changes that come through the context of television are so sweeping and wide ranging that we could spend an entire separate season explaining it all. 
and I know I'm leaving out quite a bit more that ought to be said. But one change I want to highlight and end this episode on is a change that is going to carry forward throughout the rest of this season and is relevant to the other changes in technology and media we've yet to talk about. And one of the social and psychological changes brought by Christianity delivered through television is the increased emphasis on the individual at the expense of the group. One of the things that visual mediums value is the ability for these mediums to be interacted with in isolation. You can do that with the spoken and written word, but the spoken and written word is a medium that is most readily adaptable to large groups of people or to gathered masses of people, which is what Christianity has always been driven by. Christianity is a communal religion. Christianity is not a religion where lone wolf behavior is encouraged or promoted or or rewarded. One of the things that visual mediums value is for the ability for individuals to interact with it and be able to get whatever they want out of that interaction. And it's the reason why when you look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, visual mediums are usually tied to expressions of idolatry. As Neil Postman says in the chapter of Amusing Ourselves to Death that deals with televised religion. I think it is both fair and obvious to say that on television, God is a vague and subordinate character. Though his name is invoked repeatedly, the concreteness and persistence of the image of the preacher carries the clear message that it is he, not he, meaning God, who must be worshipped. I do not mean to imply that the preacher wishes it to be so, only that the power of a close-up televised face in color makes idolatry a continual hazard. Television is, after all, a form of graven imagery far more alluring than a golden calf. The thing about our idols, though, is that whether it's the literal golden calf of the Israelites or ones that we create from our favorite actors or shows or preachers on television, we can't converse with them. But on the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we are going to look at what happens when another media revolution takes place that allows us to talk to our idols and they can talk back to us. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast made possible thanks to the super amazing talent of my good friend Andrew Akins, who has taken charge of all of the mixing and mastering and production of this show and has saved me an unbelievable amount of time so that I can research and write and manage the social media pages. Which, by the way, if you want more information about Breaking the Digital Spell, you can follow us on Twitter at Digital Spell and on Facebook And you can get uh, articles and other writings related to each week's episode throughout the week that maybe you'll find as useful supplemental material. This podcast is also made possible as a result of my wife, Melissa, who uh, helps me iron out these episodes and is able and willing to read these quotes for me. If you've enjoyed this episode, wherever you're listening to it, please consider subscribing and leaving a review and maybe even sharing it with your friends or your social media feeds. I would really appreciate that. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking 
the digital spell.